following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Hey, good morning, Fathom. Uh, So good to be with you. Uh, And thank you, Chris, for that introduction. You'll notice uh, I am wearing sneakers. And one thing you need to know about me is I'm kind of a bad boy. Uh, And so... uh, I don't wear sneakers at my own church, but what are you guys going to do, fire me? So um, it's so good uh, to be with you this morning, and uh, Fathom is a special place for me uh, and for my family. As Chris said, we're very close friends. We go back a long way. I grew up with Marcy uh, Robinson then, uh, Marcy Martin now, um, and we've remained good friends in ministry. I pray for your church often, so it's really a, a treat to get to be here. Uh, and it's true, we were roommates at CCU. I understand there's a lot of CCU cougars in the house. Um, it's true. Uh, we lived in some of the stairwells together before they changed all the names because they were offensive 15 years ago. Uh, and uh, anyway, ask Pastor Chris about how we almost got expelled for spray painting our dorm room silver. Uh, true story. And now we're both pastors. Uh, okay. Uh, Well, uh, welcome. We are going to be this morning in the gospel according to Matthew chapter 6. So if you brought your Bibles along with you, that's where we're going to be. So you can turn there. That's where we're going to be camping out. Um, And before we jump in, uh, why don't I pray for us? Spirit of the living God, it was you who first breathed life into these words as you carried these men along by your power, and we ask now that you would come, descend on this place, that you would breathe life into these words once again, because in them there is power, there is truth, there is life. We ask now that you would come and dwell with us, your people, that you would quicken our minds, kindle our hearts, that we might receive the word of God uh, together. We pray these things in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, right. So as Chris mentioned, it's true. I'm a pastor. Uh, And I'll tell you something about being a pastor. It is a really weird job. I think, Chris, you'd probably agree. It's a strange job. Um, And that's because people basically have a category for what a pastor is, but only when they see them in certain contexts, right? So if you go to church, say, on Easter or Christmas, everyone's familiar with a, a pastor, what a pastor is and what they do. But what's weird is folks are not quite sure what to do with a pastor when they see one in the wild, right? Uh, And don't get me wrong, a lot of people are really pleased when they meet a pastor. Uh, For example, old ladies in my neighborhood think it's really neat that a young man is a pastor, and I got pulled over a couple months ago, and the the police officer thought it was really cool that I was a pastor, Um, although he still gave me a ticket, which was weird, Uh, because, I mean, that's why I got into this business in the first place. um, And in my experience, people get really awkward when they meet a pastor. And this awkwardness takes one of several forms, right? Uh, Sometimes people will apologize to me when they swear, uh, as if I'm like an informant sent from the big man upstairs, and I keep a tally, and we have a once-weekly meeting where I report back. And that's ridiculous, of course. Uh, I do keep a tally, but it's just for me. Uh, Or sometimes people... uh, 
fumble and they hem and haw. When I tell people I'm a pastor, I get a lot of, oh, cool, cool, cool. How cool. That's so cool that you're a pastor. Uh, And then let's talk about something else. I can shut down a party pretty quickly by telling people what I do for a living. Um, Although sometimes this comes in really handy. Uh, For instance, I hate, 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 hate talking to people on airplanes. This has been a problem for many years. But now... I can just start the conversation by saying, yeah, I'm a pastor. I'm a Baptist pastor. (laughs) Loud enough for everyone to hear. Problem solved. uh, So having a pastor in the room can make people uncomfortable. I'm just going to give you one example from uh, close to home. Now, every year, my wife, uh, Adrian, her family does a secret Santa exchange because the extended family is huge. So we do this so that you don't have to buy a gift for everyone. And a few years back, Adrian's aunt, who is a very lovely woman whom I don't know very well, drew my name in the secret Santa. Uh, And as it turns out, she doesn't know me very well either because my secret Santa gift was a long, flowing tunic. Uh, Like the sort of thing that the characters in The Princess Bride wear, right? So if you can picture that, and I like to think of her thought process, right, as she's walking through the aisles at like Kohl's or whatever. Like, I don't really know much about Ryan, but I think he likes the Bible, and maybe he would like to dress like a biblical character. And and, um, on the back, emblazoned across the back of this tunic was an enormous, vaguely gothic-looking cross, which was, uh, wait for it, bejeweled (laughs) by rainbow-colored rhinestones. So uh, it's as if Elton John dressed up as a biblical pirate for Halloween. So that's (laughs) the shirt that I had. As if she thought I would, like, wear this around so people would know what religion I'm into. Uh, And sadly, I've lost it. I think it'll turn up uh, sometime. (laughs) Now, uh, that comes with the job, I suppose, all of that. Um, But by far, the most common way that pastors are pressed into emergency duty is to give the prayer when anything even vaguely spiritual or important is happening, and it makes no difference at all whether the people in attendance are religious or not. So ask any pastor, right? We're the ones who get asked to say grace at an otherwise sort of overtly pagan Thanksgiving dinner or at a graduation party or whatever it is. Now, when this happens, I always feel a lot of pressure, A lot of pressure to perform, to give the kind of prayer that proves that I've been to divinity school, right? A prayer that is uh, really eloquent and, and theologically sophisticated and moving. And my impulse is to really make this one count because it's not every day that people ask you to talk about divine things. So I'm really gonna go for it. And here's what happens. I end up offering a prayer that is basically like a mini sermon and it makes no discernible difference to anyone at all, right? And then we just move on. Because here's the problem. That might sound like an honorable impulse, right? And maybe some fragment of it is. Because I do want people to catch a glimpse of the goodness and the beauty and the truth of God. But in the end, that sort of impulse to perform, right? To give a sermon that's a performance. It's not a Christian impulse at all, actually. It is a pagan one. And with our time together this morning, I hope to explain a little bit about what I mean uh, by that. And so, as I said, we're going to be right in the middle of Jesus' most famous teaching, and I think his most magnificent and his most important. And of course, that's the Sermon on the Mount. As I said, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to be paying special attention to what Jesus has to say about how we exercise our piety generally. 
and how we pray specifically. Now, why the Sermon on the Mount? Well, I would say the reason is that if I can put it this way, the Sermon on the Mount is the founding charter for the kingdom of God. It is the constitution, say, of the new creation. It lays out what it looks like when a group of people like us take seriously the idea that God is reigning. Right? When, we, when we take the reign of God seriously, and the Sermon on the Mount is the roadmap by which God's people find their way into the new creation, right? And if I can mix the metaphor one more time, last time I promise, we might think of the, the Sermon on the Mount as a compass that is perfectly oriented toward true north, right? What it actually means to live as God's people and what it means to reflect the glory of God as image bearers perfectly, right? That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. So if we want any hope of living fully and truly human lives, lives that are lived in intimate communion with God and with each other, the Sermon on the Mount is where we start. Now, one of the most interesting things about the Sermon on the Mount, if you've read it, is that Jesus seems equally concerned with our actions and with the motivations that lie behind our actions. The idea here is Jesus seems to care not just about what we do, but how we do it and why. And as I hope we'll discover in this text, that has enormous implications for the way that we pray. Now, uh, we're going to be focusing mainly on verses 5 through 8. Um, I'm just going to backtrack just a little bit to verse 1, which was already read for us, and just to give us a broader sense of the context of the passage. And in context... Jesus is warning against the pernicious temptation to practice our righteousness in front of other people so as to be seen by them. And as it happens, this is only a temptation for good religious folks, folks like you and me who find ourselves in church on a Sunday morning, right? And one of the prime ways that we are tempted to demonstrate how righteous we are is by the way that we pray. So let's have a look. This is Matthew chapter 6, and I'm going to start in verse 1. Jesus speaking. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward." But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask. Okay, well, um, before we jump in in a lot of depth, let's just anticipate where we're headed this morning. And to do that, I'll say this. Jesus has just told us that there are at least two ways to pray wrongly. The first is to pray like a Pharisee. 
And the second is to pray like a pagan. Now, what does Jesus mean by this? Well, that's the challenge before us this morning. And before we jump into the text, we need to understand just what's at stake here. If we are going to understand Jesus' teachings on this point, we need to understand one thing up front. Right? The way that we pray is a very telling index of the health or unhealth of our heart. The prayer of the Pharisee is a symptom of a very grave spiritual illness. And that is the disastrous belief that God is somehow impressed by our religious performance. But the prayer of the pagan is also a symptom of a very grave spiritual illness, although it is different. It is the belief that God must be convinced to pay attention to us. Brothers and sisters, here's why this matters. The way that we pray says a good deal about who we believe God is, what we believe he is like, and what we think our relationship with him is like. The way we pray is actually shaping the way that we think about God and vice versa. We might put it this way. The purpose of prayer is not to inform God about anything, right? Since God knows all things, yes? But it is a way of conforming ourselves to God's character, In other words, the more clearly we think about what prayer is and what it is for, the more clearly God's character will start to emerge. And now I have very good news for you. The people who are following after true north, by following the Sermon on the Mount, they're going to discover that their relationship with God does not depend on their religious performance, nor is it a matter of trying to desperately please a capricious an unpredictable deity. So my hope for our time this morning is simply this, that we may come to know that whatever other identities we inhabit, and there are many, we are first and foremost adopted sons and daughters of the great king. And he is not looking for us to impress him, and he's not looking for us to persuade him. He is looking for us to simply talk to him as his children. Now, uh, that sounds easy, but it is not. And the reason it's not easy is because we are addicted to performance in every dimension of our lives. We are constantly trying to prove our value to God and others by what we do. And on the other hand, it's also not easy because so often we just can't bring ourselves to believe that God really does see us and really does care about us. So, this morning, by the power of God's spirit, let's see if we can allow him to slowly break us of those ingrained tendencies towards Phariseeism or paganism, shall we? So let's jump in. Let's start here in verse 5. This is the parading, pretentious, performative prayer of the Pharisee. And when you pray, Jesus says, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners so that they might be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. These days, uh, the most common criticism that you'll hear of Christians probably is that we're a bunch of hypocrites, uh, which is true, (laughs) right? Point taken. Uh, And it may be of some comfort, although I think it's going to be cold comfort to know that this has been a problem for religious people for a long, long time. Because if we are being honest with ourselves, we can be very concerned with appearances, can't we? We may not actually want to be holy. That takes work, right? But we certainly would like to be perceived as holy. 
right? But is that really so bad? That's a good question to ask. Surely there are worse things than trying to pretend that we're more religious than we are. Well, let's see what Jesus has to say about it, right? So uh, let's start at the beginning. Here we have a Pharisee. We are given uh, to believe by the context that that's what he's talking about here, a Pharisee. And if you are new to the world of the New Testament, not to worry, the Pharisees were simply a group of hyper-dedicated Jews who were really scrupulous about following the religious laws of Israel. Um, I first met the Pharisees as flannel graph characters in, in, in uh, elementary school and kids' ministry, and they were always the, the villains in all of the Jesus stories. And partially that's true. Partially it's unfair. They are trying to keep the covenant that God has given to Israel, and they're trying to do it uh, as scrupulously as they can. So the first thing to say is that there's nothing at all unusual about what this hypothetical Pharisee is doing. Most Jews practice set prayers at fixed hours during the day. In fact, the Jewish historian Josephus, who is a contemporary of Jesus's, he says that in the days of Jesus, Jews stopped what they were doing, whatever they were doing, to pray early in the morning, and then again at the ninth hour. That's about 3 p.m. So in all likelihood, we have every reason to believe that Jesus also would have practiced these fixed hour prayers. So there's nothing out of the ordinary here. Jesus does not seem to be concerned that the Pharisee is praying. He is concerned with how the Pharisee is praying. So to put it another way, these sort of routine moments of practiced prayer could be done discreetly, or they could be practiced ostentatiously. So again, the problem is not that the Pharisee is praying. Here's a big spoiler alert for you at church. Jesus thinks praying is good, and you should do it. The problem is that the Pharisee is very concerned that he is seen praying. Right? This is like the obnoxious and insufferable first-year philosophy student right? who goes to a hipster coffee shop and has a big stack of philosophy books. They like to be seen holding books by Kafka or Camus or uh, Nietzsche or Marx. I mean, sure, they're not going to read them, but they have them. That's the important thing, right? But it's not just obnoxious, Jesus says. It's hypocritical. And here we have some work to do because this word has a very specific meaning in the New Testament, which is related to, but it's not identical to, how, to what the word means in our cultural context. Now, here's the trouble. The English word hypocrite is simply the transliteration of the Greek word hypocrite. The word is the same in both languages, but the meaning is not. In English, the word hypocrite has come to mean someone who says one thing and does another. Right? But that's not what the word means in Greek. The word hypocrite in Greek is simply the word for stage actor. Do you know this? It's the word uh, for someone who's playing a part in a play. And as you may know, in ancient theaters, all the parts were played by men, which meant that if you were playing a female role, you would have to wear a mask. And often the casts were small. So one actor might play three or four different parts, and they would use a different mask for each one. Okay? So hypocrite is simply the word for actor. That's going to be important for us. Now, evangelicals, like us, have sometimes taken this passage to mean that true prayer is uh, extemporaneous. It's from the heart. It's not from a script. Right? Real prayers are not liturgical. They are spontaneous. Now, that is not at all what Jesus is talking about here. His real target here is the hyper-religious person who, listen, is making a stage performance of their piety. They're stopping to put on a show in the streets, he says. 
Now that's interesting. What's going on here? Well, scholars of ancient Judaism have been able to find lots of documentary evidence that some Jews did in fact stop to, do, to pray no matter what they were doing. So if they're walking in the middle of the street or they're in a busy marketplace, they would just stop. They would pray ostentatiously. And this is surely part of what Jesus means when he talks about people praying in the streets. But the phrase he uses in Greek actually suggests that he might have a different word picture in mind. Now, I've been using the ESV here. Uh, And ESV renders this at the street corners, people who pray at the street corners. And that's surely right. But what's interesting is the phrase that Jesus uses in Greek was also the proper name of a particular place. It referred to, you might think of it as uh, at the street corners, all capitalized. And the street corners, capitalized, referred to a colonnaded street in the nearby city of Sepphoris, which was the nearest big city to where Jesus grew up in Nazareth. Right? Uh, and it, what it was is not just generically any old city street. It's a specific pedestrianized thoroughfare in a big city where we know that street performers, hypocrites, would line up and perform for money. Now that changes the image, doesn't it? So the image is not just a hyper-religious person giving a long prayer in church, although that's bad enough, heaven knows. But the image is of a street performer busking for money on the 16th Street Mall. And by the way, this has got to be the lamest street performance of all time, doesn't it? Right? Imagine you're walking down the colonnades in Sepphoris, and on this side, right, you've got a guy like breathing fire or something. And over here, you've got someone on like an ancient unicycle juggling swords. And next to him is a pastor giving a really long prayer. Wild. I I don't imagine he took home many shekels. But here's the thing. The absurdity is part of the point. Jesus intends this image to be absurd because this is what hypocrisy does. It deludes us into thinking that we are something more spiritual than we are, more important than we are, more holy than we are. This is why Jesus uses the word play actor. The religious hypocrite is someone who gives an outward performance that doesn't actually reflect who they are. It's all a mask. It's pretend. They're playing a part. Brothers and sisters, here's the problem. This kind of prayer is only a temptation for folks who are in the regular habit of praying. These kinds of prayers are at bottom an attempt to impress God and to impress others. And they do this in a lot of different ways, right? Uh, they Sometimes prayers that are demonst- they're designed to demonstrate our vast scriptural knowledge, say, or our righteousness or our piety. These are prayers that are actually sermons, right? You ever been subjected to a prayer like this? It goes on and on and on. Or there are prayers that are actually gossip, right? You ever been to a prayer meeting where someone says, hey, pray, pray for Joe, because uh, XYZ, right? Or there are prayers that are somehow or another designed to demonstrate our superior righteousness. Here's the thing. These prayers don't impress God. But they do impress other people. For a little, time, a little bit, anyway. But these kinds of prayers, they offer diminishing returns. Jesus says that the full reward of this kind of prayer is the praise of mere mortals. And that is a kind of reward. It can feel very good to be seen in this way. But it's terribly short-sighted because it trades that temporal reward 
And it forfeits the much greater reward, which is genuine communion with God in moments of quiet and unpretentious communion. We're going to come back to that more in a minute. So much for that, the pretentious sort of hypocritical prayer of the Pharisee. Let's see now what Jesus is talking about with what we might call the prattling prayer of the pagan. This is verse 7. And when you pray, he says... Do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, I think Jesus's meaning here is generally clear enough. I think we get the gist, but we should note that he does use a very puzzling word here. He says, do not heap up empty phrases as pagans do. The verb here in Greek is a word batalageo, and I'm going le- to level with you. We just don't know exactly what this word means. That's a dirty little secret of seminary professors. Uh, sometimes we just don't know what words mean, and if you have a good study Bible, sometimes you'll get a footnote that says the meaning of the word is uncertain. And the reason we're not exactly sure what this word means is because this is the only place it appears in the New Testament. And it's also really rare in other ancient Greek literature too. So we've got some work to do to figure out what Jesus means here. Sometimes this word is translated as to babble on and on. And that makes a lot of sense because one thing we know about ancient pagan prayers is that before the prayer would even start, And we have record of these. You can go read them, right? Before the prayers would even start, they would have really long prologues where the supplicant would list every single possible deity who might happen to be listening and who might be relevant for the relief that was being requested, right? A New Testament scholar, Ben Witherington, has called this quite memorably the buckshot method, Uh, which is great, right? It says it perfectly. You you go to pray, you're not exactly sure which God might be listening and which might answer, so you shoot as widely as you can and hope to hit something, right? That's a really interesting image, isn't it? Now, this word, badalageo, it also might carry the connotation of emptiness, too. Now, one way to trace the word's etymology is back to the Aramaic word batal, which means empty or useless, Now, uh, remember, Aramaic was Jesus's mother tongue. So he might be creating a word here, right? Because lageo is the word to speak, right? To speak emptily or uselessly, a kind of meaningless, vain repetition of words and phrases. And we know that this, too, was characteristic of ancient pagan prayers. They were long, magical incantations and charms, and they were all designed to get the attention of the various gods. Now, we have examples of this in the Bible. And these stories, incidentally, are very funny. Maybe you know the story of Elijah and the priests of Baal in 1 Kings 18. Do you know this story? Where they're having a showdown about which god is real. And if you read that story, you're going to see the priests of Baal ranting and raving all day, cutting themselves open, repeating magical incantations, all in an attempt to get the right combination of magic words to get Baal to pay attention. And he doesn't. And it's a hilarious story because Elijah is a a killer trash talker, right? Uh, And he'll say, oh, maybe Baal's on vacation or maybe he's going to the bathroom, right? Have you checked there? Uh, It's a great story. There's another hilarious story in Acts chapter 19. You might know this story. This is where Paul is engulfed in a literal riot of pagans in the city of Ephesus. 
He's been preaching the gospel there and it's impacting the local economy because people have stopped going to pagan temples and they've stopped buying pagan shrine idols. Uh, And the blacksmith, the silversmith of the city is saying, hey, this guy's really impacting my business. Uh, And so he whips people up into a frenzy and a riot starts. Uh, And Artemis, the the Greek god Artemis, a goddess Artemis, uh, was the patron goddess of Ephesus. And so they're all in the city square chanting over and over, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Do you know this story? And they're chanting it. And the narrator of Acts tells us that by the end of the day, they chanted this all day. By the end of the day, people didn't even know why they were there. They just heard that there was chanting and they're like, hey, that sounds good. And they all jump in and they chant. And then eventually Paul just leaves because they're like so whipped up into a frenzy. They've stopped paying attention to Paul. And he's just like, okay, I'm going to go. All right. While you guys are chanting this. Now, what does that have to do with us? We're not ancient Ephesians, right? Uh, We're not uh, worshipers of Baal. We're probably not much in the habit of repeating empty and vain phrases over and over and over again as a feature of our prayer lives. So I guess we can just go to the next paragraph on the Sermon on the Mount. This one doesn't apply to us, right? I'm not so sure. We might not pile up empty phrases. We might not repeat ourselves over and over, but I think we are susceptible to rambling, superstitious prayers that have too much flowery language, too much desperate pleading with God as if he were some sort of talisman that needed to be unlocked through magic words. The prattling prayers of the pagan are the kinds of prayers that we tend to default to when we are in a crisis. They are prayers that start with things like this. God if you're listening, or God, if you're there, or God, it's me, Ryan. I know I haven't been around as much as I should have been. Or God, if you'll only do this, I'll never ask for anything else again. The problem with these kinds of prayers is that they are really an attempt to convince God to pay attention to us and have mercy on us. But here's the thing, says Jesus, unlike the capricious gods of paganism, the true God doesn't need to be appeased. He doesn't need to be persuaded. He doesn't need to be convinced to care about his people. So that means that you and I, we don't need to bargain with God. We don't need to plead with him. We don't need to try to cut deals with him. He knows what we need before we ask. So just ask. Now, why? According to Jesus, are both of these postures towards prayer, the Pharisee and the pagan, why are they both fundamentally wrong? They are fundamentally wrong for uh, one reason, and that reason is two words, our Father. Look at the beginning of verse 9. Pray then like this, our Father. Jesus surely would have been rendering this sermon in his mother tongue, Aramaic. It's been translated into Greek for us and then into English. And he would have used the Aramaic term here, Abba. You've probably heard that, Abba. Uh, It's sometimes been said that this is the equivalent of daddy, but that's not quite right because in Aramaic, Abba is not a slang term and it's not a nickname, but it does mean dad. It is the word that Hebrew children use to speak directly to their father. So the Pharisee and the pagan totally misunderstand what God is like. 
and they totally misapprehend our relationship to him. Each of them fails to recognize that prayer is most fundamentally about speaking to our dad. And when prayer is reframed as communion with our father, we see how silly both options are. Take the prayer of the Pharisee, right? My own children, uh, Kit and Sam are their names. They don't have to put on elaborate performances to demonstrate just how much of my children they are. Do you see how little sense that makes? Right? They don't have to come in to talk to me with long and pious prologues. And take the prayer of the pagan. They don't have to chant over and over, great is Ryan of Lakewood, uh, before I will answer their petition. Although it would be nice if they did that, at, like at least sometimes, right? Parents don't get any respect. Um, do you see how silly it is? Because once you recognize as Jesus wants you to recognize that prayer is nothing more and nothing less than talking with your father, it frees you from the performative prayers of the Pharisees because you don't have to impress your father. And it frees you from the superstitious prayers of the pagans since you don't have to convince your father to care about you. You don't have to be a hypocrite. You can pray in plain speech. You can drop the act. So how do we do that? in concrete terms. Just a few things for us to meditate on as we draw to a close here. The first is this. You've got to find your prayer shed. When Jesus tells us in this passage to go into your room and shut the door when you pray, the word he uses in Greek is the word tamion, and it's translated as go into your room, but the word is a bit cruder than that. It doesn't really mean a private space in a residence. Uh, it's the word for storeroom or pantry, and in some other contexts, it's even translated as shed. So the implication here is this, that you can commune intimately with your father in the humblest of all places. Doesn't have to be a church, right? Your desk at work can be your prayer shed. Your commute home in your car can be your prayer shed, right? Uh, that nook in the library where you do your homework, that can be your prayer shed, Heck, you can even use a literal shed as your prayer shed. Just don't use the 16th Street Mall, right? Number two, pray with honest directness. My father was a pastor for 37 years. Uh, he took the first job out of seminary. Uh, it was meant to be a one-year interim pastoral, uh, pastorate job, uh, and he ended up being the interim pastor there for 30, 37 years. Uh, and I will tell you something that my father always told me, and he always told his congregation about prayer. It's really good advice. Pray what is in your heart, not what you wish was in your heart. I'll say it again. Pray what is in your heart, not what you wish was in your heart. What that means is uh, religious folks like us, we tend to pray like the Pharisee because we want to sanitize our prayers before we bring them to God, right? Uh, we like to preface it with all kinds of pious sounding language, we want to make sure that it's the theologically accurate. Uh, and we want to clean up our hearts so that God will be impressed by us. But that, here's the thing, Jesus says. You're talking to your father. Don't sanitize it. Tell him what's in there. And guess what? He knows already. Right? Jesus has just told you that. And so this means that we can be direct. We can be brief. Our prayers can be simple, short. 
So a lot of you will know the name Martin Luther, great uh, Protestant theologian of the 16th century, and he was a great pastor too. Uh, and he received a letter from a friend who was feeling stuck in his prayer life. There was no traction, nothing was moving, right? Uh, couldn't find his footing. And man, man, do you feel like that? That's like my prayer life all the time, right? I don't know anything different, right? And so uh, he writes to Luther and he says, I'm desperate for help about prayer. I don't know how to get things moving. And Martin Luther wrote back with the greatest advice on prayer I've ever heard. He says, be as quick and brief as you can. Now, that's not to say there's not times for long communion with God or long prayers. But as a rule, be as quick and as brief as you can. And the third is simply this. Pray with a holy boldness. Why? Well, because of an act of sheer grace, which is the atoning work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. You can run into the throne room of the king of the universe as if it were your dad's office. And you can jump up onto his lap and you can simply ask for what you need. You don't need to try to impress him because you can't. He loves you already. And you don't need to try to convince him because he's already convinced. Would you pray with me? Abba, Father, Dad, we want to drop the act, right? We don't want to pray like hypocrites and we don't want to pray like pagans. Would you help us to grow in the trust that you love us as we are on account of Jesus' work? Would you teach us to just pray directly, honestly, boldly? And I pray now that you would just pour out your spirit on this place as we make a response of love to what you've done for us. Would you pray, uh, would you fill the praises of your people as we seek to worship you in spirit and in truth?